All right. So, if you have been here more than once and you possess a keen, highly developed sense of observation, you may perhaps notice that I am not Pastor Peter. Yes. In fact, I'm nothing like Pastor Peter. No, I am, uh, my name is Michael Emerson. I'm, a pa- I'm not a pastor here. I am a member here. Glad to be a member of Newcom. Um, and my day job is I am a provost and a professor at North Park University, and I occasionally write some books. So Pastor Peter asked me if I would preach to tie together our last two sermon series. So right now, as you know, as we mentioned earlier, we're in what we call a sacred rhythms series. We're learning the practices of discipleship, of hearing Christ God speak to us. Our previous one we called Origins, and there we really focused in on our mission statement for several weeks looking at each aspect and settling on this idea that we are reconciled to be reconcilers. So, by the way, if we're filming this, um, Pastor Peter had asked me about a month and a half ago, I came up and joined him, showed some, some slides of Chicago, some maps, and he asked me if I would do that again because it didn't get on film. So, there'll be some you may have seen if you were here then. Um, but just if it's being filmed, he asked to make sure that that screen is in the film. All righty. Very good. So just a few days ago, my family and I came back from England. That's where my sister lives, and we were there to attend her wedding to a British man. A couple of other British folks you may have heard of from the 1800s, I think, Sherlock Holmes and Watson. So there's a story, it goes like this, that Sherlock Holmes and Watson, traveling by foot through Uh, the the countryside of England trying to solve, as they always did, trying to solve a great mystery. And they had to make camp for the night. So they settled in, and as they were laying there, Sherlock Holmes said to Watson, Watson, when you gaze upon the stars in the sky, what do they mean to you? Now Watson, ever trying to impress Sherlock Holmes, said, well, meteorologically, it means that we are free from clouds and thus free from any impending rain." Cosmologically, it means that we're looking upon the vastness of light that has traveled millions of years to catch our eyes at this very moment. And theologically, it suggests that there's a great creator capable of painting a vast portrait of light and dark, speaking to us eternal truths. Sherlock Holmes laid there silently for a moment, and then he replied, No, my dear Watson, it means someone has stolen our tent. I share that story because often we overcomplicate God's Word. We want to make it so complex that we can't figure out what it actually says. It's all great mystery. I want to suggest that God's truth is very clear, and we want to look at a fundamental truth today. And we're going to do so, therefore, through a means of a child's story, at least to begin. So if we could advance to the next slide. So this is from a book called Mixed, a colorful story by Ari Chung. And I'm just going to use a few pages so that I don't get accused of borrowing too much of his book and have to pay royalty fees. Okay, next slide. Starts like this. In the beginning, there were three colors. Okay. We had the reds, 
and the yellows and the blues. Everyone lived in color harmony until one afternoon when a red said, reds are the best. Well, the yellows disagreed. No, we're the best because we're the brightest. And the reds, of course, defended their position, and the blues were much too cool to even respond. So they had to figure out what to do, and they decided the colors that they should live in separate parts of the city. That will solve it. We can go into the next. There was once a land, the city of Chicago, where they made the same decision. The purples with the purples, the greens with the greens, and the oranges with the oranges. This is our modern day where we live. Of course, purple is white, green is a black, African-American, orange is Hispanic, and we have one neighborhood for the Asians called Chinatown right in the middle of the city there. Very slender little slice. Okay? Now in the city of Chicago, they decided to put most of their jobs in the place they called the Loop. Currently, 628,000 jobs, and then next to it, on the other side of the freeway, they put another 126,000 jobs. That's the UIC medical area. What's interesting is they're putting more and more of those jobs there, 145,000 more jobs since 2010 in that little area. To give you a sense of how many jobs 145,000 is, that's more jobs than exist in downtown Atlanta. Okay, next. Now, it's not just the color of people's skin that we decide to live separately. It's also what we do and the kind of education we have. So we have three kinds of classes today, depending on the education they have and what they do for a living. We call the creative class. Those are the people with the high education. We used to call them white-collar workers. They're producing things, usually working with their minds, generating ideas, working on the web, working in law, medicine. They tend to live on the loop and going straight north. And we have a little bit of set of people who are what we call working class. Those are folks who still make things, working in factories and such. But most of the city is what we call the service class, and they pretty much spend their time serving the creative class in the restaurants and so on. Okay, next. Turns out if you match skin color with what people do for a living, they match up pretty closely so that where white folks live, that's also where the creative class lives. So you get this compounding of realities. Okay, next. And this is showing what's happened in Chicago since 1970 in terms of wealth. Chicago is growing more and more segregated in wealth. So that, that area where white folks live, the creative class lives, their wealth has increased substantially since 1970, whereas the rest of the city, their wealth has declined. We'll look at here in just a moment why that is, but that's the reality. So next, we talked about this inequalities compound until they become almost the same thing. So on this side is percent African-American. The darker the color, the higher the percent. And on this side, the percent unemployment. So I made the exact same circles, and they're basically exactly the same. Next. And in our city, you get to live in different kinds of neighborhoods. So White creative class often gets to live in lovely neighborhoods like this. And the rest of the city often looks like things like this. And they exist both in our city and they're both realities, obviously. Okay? What is this? This is bike paths. I don't know if you can see that, but it's kind of thin. 
bike paths. So you see that they're mostly concentrated. People ride bikes on the north side, apparently. Next slide. This is going to be actual figures of arrests by the city police for people doing what? Not riding in bike lanes, but riding their bike on the sidewalk. Isn't it interesting that where people don't have places to ride their bikes other than the sidewalk, that's where they get the tickets. Isn't that sort of interesting? Yeah. And also if I map where people get tickets for walking, not on the sidewalk, it's the same thing, because often there aren't sidewalks to walk on. Okay, next. Now, if you were here when I spoke last, I said part of our modern day, in the biblical times, they literally built walls to divide the ethnic groups and cities. That was their only solution to keep the peace. Here I suggest that what we do here is we build uh, a transportation system that includes mostly our L trains and our big highway system. And that helps to separate and keep the groups separate from one another. So if you look at the next slide, which is our L train system, it's a nice system, but it only, all the train lines go to one place, they go downtown, where the jobs are. You'll also notice there's some differences. The red line is the only line that kind of goes through the whole city, so it's a good comparison. On the north side, there's a stop every half mile or so. That's important because if people live within a quarter mile walk of a train stop, they will use the train. Beyond that, it starts to get iffy. Okay, so it's perfectly built for people to use it no matter where they live along that train line. On the south side, it's a gap of every mile, right? So then it becomes very iffy, requiring people to have a fairly substantial walk to get to it. The other thing is that on the red line, on the north side, it goes to the very top, and in fact, you can then get on other L trains and go into some of the suburbs. Whereas, and you don't see it in the map because I ran out of room, we stop at 95th Street, so there's another five miles of the city of Chicago with a total L train desert. And what do you do there? If you want to get to the L train, you get on these really crowded slow buses and try to get to the 95th Street stop. Okay, next. Now freeways are major, major dividers, and we've seen this over and over again. Whenever freeways were put, they usually were put and divided up neighborhoods. They usually went through areas that were poorer because they had the least ability to resist putting these in. But you can see how much of a barrier they become to go from one side to the other. So all of this, if you go to the next slide, produces our three Chicago's. Okay, so, and it really pretty much holds the, the ethnic groups together. So you have whites in, in region one, blacks in region three, and then black and Hispanic in region two. Okay, next slide. So what this is showing is combining your access to public transportation and to jobs. Who has the best access to that, that combination, jobs and to uh, being able to take public transportation? Again, you can see, as you would expect by now, the north side where all the wealth is, all the other folks have a lot more difficulty accessing their jobs with public transportation. Okay, next slide. So all of this compounds even more and makes our houses worth different amounts, which is gonna have a major impact on the wealth that we can create. Average home in Chicago is worth 145,000, for Latina, Latino, 180,000, and white, 275,000. So even if everybody makes 3% every year on their house, whites make more every year. But it doesn't really work that way. White houses go up in value faster. So they keep making more. So what we see is, in the 1980s, a gap between white, black, and Hispanic in wealth was 10 to 1. 
Now it is 20 to 1, and it will just keep growing unless we change something. Okay? It also, this won't surprise you now, but it affects our health. So this is showing on this side, heart disease rates. The darker the color, the more heart disease and strokes. And again, the, where you're safest is to live in that north side along the lake. Otherwise, we have very high rates of these. So let me boil it down into one comparison for you in the next slide. It means this. If you live in Streeterville, a neighborhood kind of in the loop area, your average life expectancy is 90 years. If you live in Inglewood on the south side, your average life expectancy is 60 years. 30-year gap, that happens to be the largest gap between two neighborhoods in the nation. And these are neighborhoods that are nine miles apart. Now let's put that into perspective. Think about your life. Kind of the way we do in modern life is the first 30 years are spent figuring out who we are, doing our education, maybe dabbling in a couple jobs, thinking about, is there someone I want to marry? Age 30 to 60, you get married, you have children, you start settling and working up the ladder in your work, and you're waiting for the time to retire. Around 60, 65, you retire, right? And what do you do with that last 30 years or so? I mean, whatever you want, but you, you look forward to grandchildren, you travel, things you've always wanted to do, maybe you want more time to read. What we're saying is in Streeterville, that gets to be your life. In Inglewood, you get to get to retirement and then you die. It's quite a difference. You don't get to have the time to watch your grandchildren grow and such. Okay, next slide, please. All right, so what is this? It is very clearly what God would call systematic injustice. And the Bible clearly says this is profoundly wrong, this kind of corporate sin. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Nahum 3, 1 through 3. See, the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to, used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. We've heard of that in Chicago before. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not become, come before them. Fallen is Babylon the Great. We're going to see in a moment why we talk about Babylon. It represents something. It's not specifically the city itself, so keep that in mind. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. It goes on to say, because of Babylon's influence, cities impact the world. The nations now have drank her wine, and therefore they have all gone mad. And then we get into Revelation, it says, Babylon's sins have piled all the way up to heaven. It's a lot of sins. Okay, next slide, please. But God does not stay seated. I, I'm trying to read through the Bible here. Amen. And it came across this this week, as I'm in Psalms right now. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise. I had enough. God says, it's time, I'm standing up. I will protect them from those who malign them. So, what does it mean for us? Next slide. We are to join God in his work, and he just told us what his work is. Next. What are we to do? We are called to be reconcilers, ending this estrangement that we have with one another, 
with our systems, reconciling us to himself through Christ, it says. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There it is. Our ministry is reconciliation. That's why at the church here we say we are reconciled to be reconcilers. That's the ministry we have been given. So in Chicago here, what does that, what does that mean for us? So let's take a look here. Next slide. Mm-hmm. Biblically, what does the city mean? So the city is mentioned 1,250 times or so in the Bible. That's more than that Jesus is mentioned in the Bible. And what I've said before, in biblical times, and in fact until 1800, no more than 3% of humanity ever lived in cities. So that God put so much time and emphasis talking about cities in the Bible, said a couple things. One, he knew we would eventually become, as we have become now, majority urban people. And two, that cities have profound influence on the rest of the world. So even when 3% only live in cities, they still impact because that's where culture is produced and so on. All right. In the Bible, there's a very clear cosmic drama that goes on, and it's always represented by Babylon. Remember, that's why we were talking about Babylon before, and Jerusalem. So let's compare. What does Babylon represent? What does Jerusalem represent? So if we go to the next slide, we'll look at Babylon first. Babylon represents immorality, an attempt to breach heaven's gate on our own. The ill fate of urban greed, a destroyer of Jerusalem, so it actually is attacking the holy city. Chest pumping, a prideful place, a place that's rampant with inequality, that thinks that's just fine. Dangerous, unrest, and in to itself a rejection of God. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most well-known kings of Babylon, and he stood out, looked upon his great city, and this is what he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Represents well, and we know a little bit later God took him down and he was out crawling around eating grass. So ultimately God gets the last say. But that is what Babylon represents. And then Jerusalem, of course, is everything that is the opposite. Righteousness, a spiritual center, a place that has justice, a place that is safe and peaceful, a place that provides security. There's happiness, prosperity, community. Ultimately, it's where God's creation flourishes. Okay, so that's what goes on biblically. It's pretty clear what kind of city we then ought to be working for. Let's look at then um, a very important set of verses. If we'll go to the next slide. There we go. All right, I'm going to ask you to do something. There's Bibles in front of you. If you don't have your own, if you could pull it out. uh, And turn to page actually 641. I love what I put here. In the Pew Bibles, Jeremiah starts about page 612. In the Pew Bibles, I must like the words Pew Bibles or something. I think there's power in like holding the physical thing. Of course, I'm old-fashioned, right? But seeing the context of where it is in the Bible, what's around it, because we're going to want to talk a little bit. But let me read the verses. Hopefully, you can follow along with me there. We're going to do Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. And then we'll talk a little bit about the context and and its meaning. All right. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Now here's what he says what to do. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the shalom, or in your translation it will say peace and prosperity, of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, the context here is that the prophet Jeremiah, who is, does not live there, is writing to the exiles who used to be in Jerusalem. Now they are in Babylon. And he's instructing them uh, what they need to be doing while they're there. And if they do the things that he says for them to do, he actually gives them a promise that in 70 years, sounds like a long time, they'll get to come back, that God will bring them back to Jerusalem. So let's be clear what it is God is asking them to do. There's all this stuff about building houses and planting gardens and getting married and having children. What does that mean? It means live your lives in that city. Do not be strangers there. Make that place your home and do the very things you would do if you were here in Jerusalem. So what does it not mean? It means don't be attacking the city. Don't withdraw into your own cloister. Integrate. Be part of this city. Live your lives while maintaining, of course, your faith. Uh, it's very important that you continue to have children. That seems to be very much emphasized. And then it says what they're to do beyond what you would normally do. Seek the peace and prosperity or the shalom of the city. Shalom gets translated peace and prosperity oftentimes in English. It has even a deeper meaning than that, of course, peace, prosperity, but also it means harmony, completeness, and welfare and safety. So you, when you're praying for the shalom, when you're seeking for it, you're seeking for the ultimate welfare of the city, and then it says why. Because if this city prospers, if it has shalom, then you will have shalom. You too will prosper. So there's also a promise in there. So ultimately, this is what God says. And if you could go to the next God wants cities to be transformed, it's very clear what, to Jerusalem type. God wants to transform cities by removing sinful practices within them and replacing them with worship of him, spiritual, physical, political, and social revival. That's what it is. Okay, so I'm going to give you five biblical principles to do that. Next slide, please. Okay, if we could have the next slide, we have it, yes. All right, these come out of uh, careful study by not just me, many people. What does the Bible outline as the way to transform a city? So one is to call out sin. Now that's one we often want to avoid. Most Old Testament prophets who weren't very popular people uh, made pr pronouncements of woe upon cities because of their corporate sin, their moral permissiveness, materialism, idolatry, tolerating poverty and injustice. And they would come to the king, can you imagine that? And say, woe to you king who tolerates this. And the king would either cut your head off or 
I remember one king in the Old Testament like, oh, don't bring that one. He always brings me bad news. Bring somebody who gives me good news. Anyway, clearly, as a Christian community, we are to identify where a city falls short and to call it out. It's a precursor to the second step. And the second step is a call to repentance. The church is to become incarnate in, in the city itself, to incarnate within the city. A city within a city, as we say in our mission statement. We are to be that community that lives as if we are in Jerusalem, that works for it, that works for the shalom of our brethren by calling for repentance as the second step. And then third, prayer and praise. Pray for the city. The Bible is very clear on that. We just read that. Pray for the city. Pray for its deliverance. Pray for its victory over evil. Pray for justice. Give praise for everything that is good in the city. There's always good. Give thanks. Now the fourth is compassion. There's a couple different kinds of way of expressing compassion on a city. One is taking issues that are harmful, taking them as reality, and then trying to help the people that are being hurt by them. You might, and I'll use the example of homelessness. People are homeless, we'll help to feed them, clothe them, and so on. Another way to show compassion is to say, we will not accept involuntary homelessness. So we must change whatever is causing homelessness. That's another way. Two different ways, both needed, both vitally important. And then finally, the fifth step, the fifth principle that God gives us is that we are to engage in community and political involvement. We are to work for more just laws, policies, and practices. We're supposed to, if it's a part of our talent, work for better designed cities. I'll give you an example of that in a moment. Work to create places where people flourish, where God's creation is flourishing, and we'll partner with other organizations as needed. We don't just do it on our own. These are huge issues that need cooperation between different organizations. So let me give you one thing here, a set of guidelines. What kind of things do we need to work for? So I'm, hopefully you can see that. All right. So the Bible gives us a couple of very important things. Accumulation in the hands of a few, bad. So wherever we see that, bad. That represents Babylon, and we are to work against it. Excluding the vulnerable, widows, orphans, the poor, the stranger, bad. Placing emphasis on stuff, money, status, position, power. Productivity, bad, if it's over relationships. Relationships have to take priority. And then, of course, living apart from God, relying on ourselves, which we've been doing since Genesis 3, bad. The main goal, what are we working towards? The flourishing of God's people and their relationships. What are the, when we ask Jesus, what are the greatest commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. And who's our neighbor? The person next door? We learn from Jesus, nope, the marginalized, the oppressed, whoever's hurting. What's our main task? Join God in his work. Imagine that. God invites us to join him in his work. He could do it himself, but he wants us to be part of it. 
be reconciled, to be reconcilers in our city, to have a Jerusalem witness. And then our approach, and I take this from Pastor Peter on May 26th. He said, working for justice without relationships turns people into projects. Bad. So relationships are central. Next slide, please. Boil it down to this. We need a vision. A people without a vision perish. We create a plan to realize that vision, and then we put it into practice. Simple management stuff. I'm taking a management course right now at Harvard. This is what I'm learning. Pretty cool. We're going to steal their knowledge and put it to practice in the Christian world. All right. Seven things that we can do. Let's, let's just build it down now. Last couple of slides. So let's be real practical. Yeah, how do you change a city or one person? So let's go to the next slide here. That's the next slide? Okay. Uh, yeah, that is. All right. I love this slide. I was at the uh, architecture center downtown, and they had this as a vision of what Chicago could be. What if, instead of nasty, loud streets, we took the streets away and made linear parks everywhere throughout the city that families and people could walk and enjoy, and we move around, if you can see that, through air-conditioned bike lanes, or heated in the winter, climate-controlled, and if you can't bike or don't want to bike, then we have these transportation pods on the outside that you can take. That just sounds so futuristic and ridiculous. Look at the next slide. This is 1890. Can you imagine people who are getting around in horse and buggies and walking on dirt roads only here in Chicago, and there's this thing going up and it's some huckster saying, we're going to have mechanicalized trains floating in the sky and you're going to ride them. Next slide. 1893. When we get to the next slide, there they were. And they're still here, aren't they? We move around in trains in the sky. So if you go to the next slide, it isn't so far-fetched. This is actually less far-fetched than what they did a hundred and some thirty years ago. I cannot imagine who even ever thought that that could be possible back then, but they did it. We could do this. Okay, so that's what I mean by having a grand vision. Next slide. Okay, so seven things we could do, and we're going to organize this into three things, just what we're talking about with um, our current system, a series here of Elijah, that he goes into the desert, he gets the word from God, then he goes out of the desert and into ministry. So it's always that rhythm, right? Into the desert, out of the desert, into ministry. So our into the desert time in this would be figuring out what the Bible actually says, I've given you a few things, but my word, there's so much more. As I said, if the Bible talks so much about the city, there's no way in a couple of minutes I can give you all of its depth. We should do Bible studies. You could do it alone, but it's more fun to do it with in your small group or even as a church-wide. What is the teaching on cities and what does God call us to specifically? And then second, to be in prayer. Always when we're in the desert, we're in prayer praying for shalom, praying for God's guidance on what we are to do. As we begin to move out of the desert, step three, stay informed. Be reading about the various issues that are affecting the city. What is impacting it? Both of the city as a whole and then, of course, in your neighborhood as well. Join the larger body in prayer. This one's so important, and we have it really made here. Um, if you go to shyunitepray.com, 
it's short for ChicagoUniteToPray.com. We actually have, as Christians, we have quarterly citywide prayer for the city. My wife and I have attended a few. We've gone on the ones on the south side, north side. Now it's gotten big enough that they'll have them all over the Chicago region, in the city, out in the suburbs, praying for the peace and prosperity of the city. So we as Mosaic can join our brothers and sisters in other congregations as part of that. Five, critique the wrongs and seek repentance. Okay, holding leaders accountable, challenging inequality, working against it. I love the saying they have in Denmark. It's this, that they strive to do, and this came out of their Christian heritage, where few have too much and even fewer have too little. That's what they strive for. Provide alternatives to sin, showing a better path. Do prayer walks, blessing. I love what our children are doing right now. They're bringing blessing to our neighbors. It's awesome. And then into the world. Engage in compassion and blessing ministry. Volunteer and donate at Open Arms. We have it right here. Bring gifts to the neighbors like our children are doing. Welcome people into your home. Finally, engage in ministry of city improvement. Find something that you're passionate about. Find an organization that's already trying to do it and join them. All right, so you might care about better parks, better transportation, better education, healthier air. It's all there. It's all going to help to bring shalom. Let's end with this last slide. Ah, okay. One thing you could do. <laughs> I love that because it looks so real, like you're really there. <laughs> you might even do this. Of course, only a few of us can actually do that, but we're very grateful. Okay, last slide. And this is actually, Pastor Peter has shared this with us. I think when I say, ultimately, we overcomplicate, what I love about this quote is it cuts through all of that complication and just boils it down. The righteous, who are they? They are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. And the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. It really is that simple. So you can ask yourself as you go through your life, where are you? What are you doing with those? Right? Okay, so let me just conclude here on the last slide, which is our first slide. We are called, yeah, CC's coming up. We are called to be reconciled to God and to each other within our community, but that's for the purpose of being reconcilers across our city. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would continue to ignite a passion in us to join your redemptive work in the city. We want to see Chicago be more like Jerusalem than Babylon. Guide us, direct us in how to do so, make a path for us as a people to do so. Connect us to one another here at Newcom. Connect us at Newcom to other churches and organizations so that together we can seek the shalom of the city and be true reconcilers. We are grateful for what you do. Amen. Amen. If you would, stand on your feet with us as we sing this song in response. As we pray and ask the Lord what we need to do for the city, what he's asking for each of us individually, how we can 